because I think the best program is one that combines all of those things. Not having people do just one or two things, there's at least five or six that you could think of doing that kind of really wrap the kid around, um, helping lift that veil and then helping to pull the kid out from underneath that veil of autism. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today is a professor of psychiatry from UCSF, Robert, uh, aka Bob Hendren. Welcome, Bob. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks uh, uh, for including me. My pleasure. Uh, so, Bob, you're a, a professor of psychiatry, but you've got a real um, interest and passion in looking at um, childhood neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly um, uh, autistic spectrum disorder, and not only um, from a, a research and clinical perspective, but you also have a heavy interest in the integrative treatment of um, these neurodevelopmental issues. Uh, perhaps, maybe better, um, you can give us a bit of a background on you know, how you've landed in looking at integrative medicine and publishing on this and, and doing clinical research. Yeah, I uh, would enjoy doing that. I um, ha- have been somewhat traditionally trained. I did my general psychiatry training at the Mayo Clinic and my child psychiatry training at the Yale Child Study Center. Um, I worked in a variety of academic medical centers, but was interviewing a few years ago to be the executive director of the MIND Institute. The MIND Institute stands for Medical Investigation of Neurodevelopmental Disorders. It's at UC Davis. And uh, as the parents who had founded it, and together we all raised well over $100 million to build a building and to begin doing research, when they first interviewed me, they said, we hope that you will leave no stone unturned about what might cause autism and how it might be treated. We want you to do good science, but we want you to keep an open mind. And there was a part of that charge that I really liked. Uh, It gave me kind of uh, encouragement to consider anything, but then to try and do research that could show whether that actually worked or not. So I went to number of meetings of practitioners that did their research uh, or did their clinical work, not so much based on research, but on their feeling about what works. And sometimes those things were not based on good science. But I asked a group of them at one point, you know, what do you think is the first randomized control trial that I could do at the Mind Institute that would help look at some of these novel techniques, and I'll talk more about what they are in a minute, but what what we could, what could we do? And they said, well, we think you ought to do chelation. I said, well, you know, I think chelation is just too controversial and difficult to do well because you need to clean out the gut and you need to do a variety of other things. What else? And they said, methyl B12. So the first trial I did was uh, of a a randomized control trial of methyl B12. It was a crossover design. And 
we used oxidative stress biomarkers as an outcome measure. It impressed me that a number of the kids really did better. They looked almost as though a veil had been lifted from them. They seemed more attuned. It didn't cure their autism, but it made them look healthier and be more connected. And that kind of launched me on a career of saying, are there ways that we could understand the way certain supplements or the way certain deficiencies might play a role in a child not being as resilient as possible? And could we use biomarkers to guide our treatment and our interventions that could help make kids be more resilient? And I continued that work at the Mind Institute, and then I came here to the University of California, San Francisco, about 10 years ago, and have continued doing research on those kind, in those kinds of ways, looking at supplements that might affect epigenetic processes that I can measure biomarkers of and see whether metabolic change is being brought about. Wow, that's a that's a lot, and I really like that that phrase, the leaving no stone unturned. And I might use that um, analogy before we dive into all those interesting areas of methyl B twelve and the biomarkers. Um, yeah, the the, the ASD is a, a you hopefully can elaborate on this very complex and um, I often feel like in integrative medicines, like that analogy, the the blind men or the blindfolded men feeling the elephant. Like there's all these different Areas that people focus in on, whether it's methylation or detox or nutrition or um, epigenetics or the gut is a big area. Um, but, yeah, perhaps it's all part of a, a bigger picture. So before we dive in, um, if you can do this briefly, if, if possible, is what's the sort of the current understanding of the etiology of um, ASD? Well, I think the simplest way is that one could say is that we know that there is a genetic or neurogenetic component, that there are certain genes, although not any one gene, and it's likely a combination of genes and genes interacting with each other that create a vulnerability. Those might be caused either because of inherited genes or because of those uh, kinds of changes that that in some ways the genetic structure or the things around the genes have been changed in a way that to some extent create that vulnerability. But the second hit, the second etiologic factor seems to be an environmental factor of some kind. And it could be multiple ones of those. It could be toxins in the environment. It could be childhood stress or infancy stress or maternal stress a variety of factors that play a role in key points of development that then interact with the genetic vulnerability to then result in a neurodevelopmental perturbation, uh, things not going in the right direction, and and then result in autism. Sure, okay. Um, thank you. So one of the, the thoughts I've had of this is maybe it's a, a you know, there's a parallels to say like um, smoking and cancer that um, in integrative medicine there's often this mantra of looking for the root cause, but um, perhaps 
treating the root cause won't, um, or if possible, you know, you can't really treat genetics, um, but maybe the environmental stress, um, say the maternal stress during pregnancy, we can't un- unwind the clock and um, undo that. But is it like, say, smoking that um, may cause cancer, say, 40 years later, but the treatment, obviously, for lung cancer isn't smoking cessation, obviously, that you'd like them to stop, but um, that alone is not going to cure it. Does that make sense? Like with autism, are there processes going on other than like the, the quote-unquote root cause that um, are better to target? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, but there's a kind of hierarchy of changes that we sure. see. So when we talk about this epigenetic process, the process that goes from the external way that the person is and the most core part of, say, their genes, there's a way that genes express themselves. And that gene expression gets influenced by uh, different factors that affect its health. If we're closest to the gene, we talk about things like acetylation or histone modification or processes like that. When we get a little further away, though, I think we can talk about the things that you referred to earlier, like oxidative stress or excitatory inhibitory uh, activations or mitochondrial health or um, inflammatory or immune processes. All of those factors then play a role in influencing the way those genes express themselves. And if we could help the body be more resilient, to be healthier, they could push back against those processes that are changing that epigenetic process and help the body then be healthier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that concept of um, work on the resilience and things you can actually, you know, it's actionable, you can get some, some traction with. All right, so I just want to run through some different areas and, um, yeah, look at not only the current research but maybe what's emerging and um as you mentioned before we start recording you you acknowledge you're not an expert in all these areas so um yeah divulge where you can and then maybe just give you your thoughts on where you're not so um you know uh haven't studied uh, specifically in detail but your thoughts as a clinician so first of all um want to touch upon the mitochondria because uh, i'm really fascinated with this and i've discussed it a little bit in other podcasts um with the role of the mitochondria um in the this concept of the cell danger response that dr um robert navio uh down the road from you I, i believe um has coined and has done some work with administering uh, an old medication called suramin to children with ASD and seen some, it's only a small pilot trial, and seen some remarkable um, improvements. But the point is that it's not really, you know, detoxing or chelating or, or whatnot. It's helping the, the cells in the mitochondria basically work better and um, overcome this block in the quote-unquote healing cycle. So could you, yeah, give me your sort of views or if you want to add to that and put into context and where you see this fits in and how it may um you know, unfold in the, the, the ASD research? Yeah, years ago, people talked about whether mitochondrial disorder played a role in autism. And the literature and studies at that point said, you know, it's mitochondrial disorders are really rare. And it's rare that a mitochondrial disorder would be the cause of autism. 
but research going on from there said, no, we're not talking about a real mitochondrial disorder as, you know, the mitochondria are the little energy bunnies in, that drive the cells and that, that are your kind of energy packs. And if they're not healthy, then there isn't as much energy being produced and helping the body grow in healthy ways. So it could be a disorder that one could see where there's muscle weakness and a variety of other things, or it could be just the mitochondria aren't functioning as well as they might be. And when we define it in that way, it gets to be 30 or even 40% of kids with autism show evidence of mitochondrial dysfunction. And depending on how sensitive our tests are, it could be even more than that because we don't have great ways of measuring mitochondrial dysfunction, but those that we do suggest that's a problem for some kids who have autism. So then you'd say, well, what could we do to make mitochondrial healthier, to make those little energy bunnies work better? And the most uh, frequently cited one is CoQ10. There is not necessarily a great body of evidence suggesting that CoQ10 clearly improves mitochondrial function and thus improves autism. But there are some smaller studies that haven't fully been replicated suggesting it might. And when parents come and say, well, what about putting my child on CoQ10? I usually say, I think that's a fine idea. I don't know. I can't tell you that it's going to really pay off because we don't know the biomarker to say whether this is a problem for your child and can show that it makes a difference, but it's worth considering. So Dr. Navio, who has been a, you'd mentioned earlier this Autism Research Institute, and I'm on the board of directors of the Autism Research Institute, and there's a group that meets once a year uh, called the Think Tank, and it's maybe 30 people uh, that meet and discuss their research, and the others uh, kind of offer insights or criticisms or suggestions. And Dr. Nivio presented the Suriman study maybe three years ago, and it's since been published. Um, and is an exciting idea that perhaps this compound that had kind of been neglected and used to treat another illness uh, might help kids with autism. Um, I think he only had 10 subjects, and I don't think it was uh, randomized or blinded, but he did show benefits for these children, suggesting that it was worth more future study. Uh, I, I know that he's continued to work on that, and yet I don't know of any further publications saying that it's helpful. And it's a medication that's given IV, so it's not something that can be kind of easily tried by somebody who says, oh, I think maybe I'll give that a try. Um, it takes somebody who's experienced in using it and, and knows how to administer the intravenous uh, medication. but it suggested, again, a stronger promise for helping uh, mitochondria. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I didn't realize it was IV. So there's a few hurdles there, and I, I believe there's a, another trial coming up, I think, because only, he only gave it one dose, 
um, and they measure the children after six weeks and saw a big improvement. So I think they're going to do a follow-up study with multiple doses. But, yeah, let's watch this space. It's exciting, but there might be, yeah, still a few hurdles there. And he did get some good funding to help him do that, and it was kind of more a, you know, a donor who believed in it, and that's wonderful. That can make such a difference. Many times finally going to a pharmaceutical company who would say, well, this medication already exists, I can't get a patent for it, or going to NIH who would say you don't have enough evidence yet. Um, What we're all really dependent on is uh, someone who has some funding available and can listen carefully to, uh, you know, to what we're doing and then offer to provide funding. And, and he is a really top class uh, professor at, at UC San Diego. And, and I think he provided a good rationale for somebody wanting to invest in that. Yeah, yeah. I obviously neglected to, about the, the need for funding and if it's not a, a patentable drug, then it can be really difficult. So fingers crossed that it can continue, but hopefully that early preliminary results will be enough to hopefully be able to generate some more um, funds. So uh, now let's move on to the gut-brain access, which is um, quite dear to most integrative therapists' hearts. Um, and I'm going to probably be a heretic here because I'm still a little bit confused or unsure about the role of the the gut in ASD. More so, um, sometimes it seems like a knee-jerk reaction that um, the gut's controlling the brain, but um, I often wonder whether the brain's controlling the gut as well. Um, So could you give a bit of a – but maybe it's also a note of intervention as well to get some benefits. So um, cause, consequence, epiphenomenon, what's your sort of big-picture understanding of the role of the, the GI tract in ASD? Well, I think one part is how the embryo develops. The gut and the brain develop at similar times. They have similar, in some ways, kind of ways that they develop. Both of them have uh, a large amount, secrete a large amount of serotonin, use a lot of the same neurotransmitters. There's a certain similarity in that way between the gut and the brain, even though obviously as we look at them, we say they're very different. But if we think about how they develop and what their nature is, we can say there are some similarities. The other part of that, though, is the way the gut um, can influence the way our body is working through what gets digested and what gets released through the walls of the gut. And a lot of the interest in autism has been to say that these children, some of these children with autism, have a way that either because they're having trouble digesting certain proteins or because of their own innate abilities to to do things, get some amount of gut inflammation. And that gut inflammation eventually um, causes a changing in the walls, the lumina of 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 the gut. And makes it so that those junctures are further apart. And that process produces what is sometimes referred to as a leaky gut. The leaky gut always seemed like a strange concept to me. But increasingly, I'm finding a number of really good research groups are talking about leaky gut or this 
irritation or inflammation leading to a separation of the junctures that leads to certain things inside the gut that might have an opioid-like nature leaking into the bloodstream and affecting then brain function. So that's led people to say, are there things we can do to help digest those things that might be causing problems? And can we do things that help those junctures tighten up so that they don't leak? So people think about probiotics being one thing that might help digest some of the large proteins. People also think about a casein gluten-free diet. So eliminating milk, eliminating wheat, which are large proteins and at least theoretically have difficulty being digested in the gut because it takes breaking them down. So if you eliminate them from the diet, or could there be a way that you help the body break them down, perhaps by probiotics, or there's another pancreatic digestive enzyme on the market, not on the market, that's been researched that um, is produced by a company called Curemark that seemed to help break down those large proteins. And there have been studies suggesting that an enzyme, fecal chymotrypsin, plays some role in that and, and is connected to this process, and that study has been published. Um, but there hasn't been a published study showing that the Curemark pancreatic digestive enzyme makes a difference in breaking down these large proteins and therefore improves symptoms of, of autism. Although, if you look at their website, you'll see that they've been doing studies of that. And it would suggest, because the FDA is still talking to them, that there is some possibility that that might help. So I guess the conclusion of all of that would be to say there's there are things about the gut that um, play a role in a number of disorders, including brain disorders and autism. And there might be things that we can do related to gut health that makes a difference in how these kids function. The other end of that, so to speak, is mm -hmm. the... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was waiting for the pun here, I think. Okay. The <laughs> other end of that was... Uh, is to say that we've now started talking about fecal transplants, the notion that perhaps the, the contents of the gut in people with autism continue with them, even if we were to sterilize their gut with vancomycin or try to do and change their diet, that what we need to do is grow different kinds of organisms in the gut that would help it function in a healthier way. And so there has been one study done, done uh, at Arizona State University with a group of collaborators suggesting that taking uh, feces and, that were sterilized and then transplanting them in people resulted in improvement in their autistic symptoms for months. and. Those and that even continued months after the transplant. And there are larger studies now being done. And I think there are people 
in Australia and perhaps in New Zealand that are doing those treatments now, not necessarily in a research protocol, but um, that one can go and, and get them. I have had one patient who went with his family to do that. Wow. Okay. So the yeah, clinicians are starting to do the, the FMT. And um, I think Thomas Burrody from Australia was part of that collaboration that you mentioned. Um, and I think after two years, the the ASD symptoms had really dramatically reduced in some children. I think we're off the spectrum and their, their diversity of the microbiome uh, had increased back to sort of quote-unquote normal levels. So it's, yeah, um, yeah, fascinating area and another one of those things to, to watch this space. Um, so another area they want to look at loosely connected to the gut-brain and this is more emerging um, and again, not sure how familiar you are with this area, but the, this concept of um, the vagal nerve might mediate some of the, the benefits or the information from the, the gut to the brain. And now there's, um, you know, research and therapies about stimulating the vagal nerve in ASD, such as this transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. Um, are you familiar with it? What's your thoughts? Do you think it's sort of like an additive therapy or what's the, maybe the, the promise that holds in this area? Yeah, I don't feel expert in that area. I did read one publication that talked of it being of benefit, and the group that did that was enthusiastic. Um, but I, I don't feel like there has been enough replication, or I don't feel like I'm enough of an expert to say the mechanism of action that would sure. suggest I know that this is something that people ought to consider or try. Okay, thanks. All right, so let's move on to another area where I'm sort of like a bit of a chicken or egg scenario in my mind um, is this idea of um, environmental toxicity, but also tying to this concept of lower resilience in these children. So children with ASD, there's been multiple studies, whether it's heavy metals or pesticides or you know PCBs, et cetera. But on the flip side, are they maybe more the canary in the coal mine because um, for whatever reason, they've got low glutathione, which is one of the main sort of antioxidants and detoxifiers. So, again, any sort of overarching view or consensus about this link between environmental toxicity and this maybe lack of resilience or lower resilience in these children? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there is a growing literature about the role of glutathione and its uh, role in defense of our body and the role that it plays. Um, the study that we did of methyl B12 showed that for those kids that improved, uh, they started off with low levels of glutathione and they wound up with higher levels and they improved the most. And there are a few other studies looking at glutathione, but glutathione supplementation just by itself for autism hasn't shown a kind of robust benefit at this point to say that it might be tried yeah, okay. there i think theoretically it makes good sense and maybe we don't have the right formulation there's a one of my colleagues is really enthusiastic about a french group that has a sublingual glutathione that works really wonderfully well but hasn't been tested in autism maybe there's ways of preparing glutathione and helping its release. Maybe, too, there are subjects that 
have deficiencies in glutathione and how it's working for them, but we don't measure that well before we put everybody in a study, and so the results tend to wash out. We need better biomarkers, a better way of characterizing somebody, and just a glutathione level doesn't seem to, to fully do that. I think we need something more sophisticated to know what's the right match for this child that can help them become more resilient. Okay, thanks. And back to when you first began about the um, chelation, um, which sounds like a pretty invasive procedure, what, you know, perhaps should clinicians consider, like, do you think chelation's ideal or um, are there other ways of boosting uh, endogenous um, detoxification or, again, maybe is the the toxin like, um, you know, it's a, a sort of a perinatal exposure and that's long since passed in terms of like the the damage, like, do we treat toxicity and, and basically what's sort of the, the safest or best way of um, approaching that? Yeah, well, so I think the first part is how do we treat toxicity? And I think that's um, you know, complex and has to do with a number of different things. But one way that people have proposed is chelation. And, and people have proposed that both for heart disease and vascular disease and a variety of other things. But when it was described for autism, it led to some enthusiasm, but then um, people found that it was complicated to do. Not only do you pull out mercury with chelation, but you pull out a lot of other heavy metals, and you need to think carefully about how to replace those heavy metals. People say that you should sterilize the gut with a casein gluten-free diet for three months ahead of time. You might also clean the gut with vancomycin. Various people do it various ways, but there's not a standard procedure. I do know some uh, practitioners that use chelation, not frequently, but occasionally in their practice. I do know some patients that say it's helped, but there hasn't been a good study to say that. And the specter that's often held up was maybe 10 or more years ago, some practitioner used the wrong kind of chelator and the child died. And so people say, well, you know, you can kill people with chelation. And, you know, it's true, you can do that if you use the wrong kind of chelator, but we often chelate kids that have lead toxicity. We don't worry about killing them. We worry about people being a good practitioner and knowing how they're using what they're using and, and doing it. I'm not an advocate for chelation. And even colleagues of mine that do chelation tell me they think that there are other ways that we can treat environmental toxicity than through chelation. That In some ways it's through diet, in some ways it might be with methyl B12, in some ways it might be with glutathione. Um, but maybe we don't need to use the chelation, but chelation by itself in the hands of a skilled practitioner is not necessarily dangerous. It's just when somebody isn't ex experienced in doing that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, as a bit of a segue, you've done some research on uh, sulfurophane ASD. Sulfurophane, um, one mechanism is it induces 
uh, endogenous antioxidant defense. So, yeah, tell us about your recent research with sulforaphane. Well, sulforaphane, as you know, is a concentrated broccoli sprout extract. It's People say, well, could I just eat a whole bunch of broccoli? But yeah. you have to eat a ton of broccoli to get that much uh, that's in it. But it seems to have, a, and cruciferous vegetables have been known to have an effect on oxidative stress. Uh, and it's an encouraged part of people's healthy diet. But here it's a, a large amount. And it was initially developed to treat oxidative stress and cancer. And they found in that process that it had an effect on heat shock protein. And heat shock protein seems to also have some role in autism. Some kids with autism seem to get better uh, when they have a fever and fever affects heat shock protein. So uh, a thoughtful practitioner uh, said, well, maybe sulforaphane could help kids with autism because of this heat shock protein and maybe it would, and his group did a randomized control trial indicating that indeed kids taking sulforaphane did better on autism outcome measures. So based on that, we thought, could we use metabolomics as a biomarker? Metabolomics measure hundreds or even thousands of metabolic byproducts that cluster into different groupings. And we could look at those groupings, one of which was oxidative stress, stress but there were seven other groupings that came out significantly different in the kids that had the most abnormality at the beginning and improved the most with sulforaphane treatment after 12 weeks of treatment. And this was at a school for children with autism, the Oak Hill School, where we have outcome measures that measure how all the kids are doing. And we enroll people in IRB-approved studies if parents are interested, usually of supplements like we just finished another trial of folinic acid that you know might help boost these kids resilience and we published the sulforaphane paper in molecular autism and the folate paper is under review um, but it, the, the other part of it that i find promising is the notion or idea that maybe we could use a broad uh, way of looking at metabolic abnormalities like metabolomics that could tell us the unique profile of a child so that we could better target treatments towards that child's unique profile. I think too often we're kind of going blind and we show throw six or eight or 10 or 12 different supplements at a child saying maybe this will help them. But the process that we're hoping to target may have been active at one point, but it's not active now. Or maybe it's not active now, but it will be in the future. Or maybe even some of all the things we're throwing at them don't work as well as if we did it in a more uh, programmatic way of saying, here are the deficiencies. We'd like to put this kind of package together to treat this person's unique profile. And that really, for me, is where my greatest excitement in research right now is, is to say, 
could we show with a few more of these single design studies um, that that these kinds of supplements make a difference in metabolic and clinical outcomes? And could we eventually get to a point where we could do a test that would help us know um, what's what's the unique profile and what's the right combo combination for the child? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So the metabolomics um, is essentially like blood serum and maybe urinary levels of obviously metabolites, but these aren't the the classical or they go on above and beyond the classical things like say serum vitamin D or you know um, you know CRP or B12 and folate etc. So is it more and, and I think sort of this is where Bob Navio is also looking at as well. Um, more I don't know, exotic, if you want to call it that, um, uh, biomarkers like phospholipids and sphingolipids, etc. So, can you uh, basically um, these tests aren't currently really available, are they, at the moment commercially? Um, they're more for from a research perspective. So, can you just sort of paint the picture of where we're at now and what you'd like to see in the future, perhaps? Yeah, there there are uh, at least two. I think there's three actually metabolomic companies that are you know, working diligently to try and get these ready for uh, for the market. Uh, there was a large study that David Amaral and his group published from the Mind Institute looking at kids with autism and their metabolomic profiles. There was our study. There have been a few others. But, um, you know, one can go to the companies and buy the metabolomic profile, but you don't have the... the uh, norms to compare it to you don't have yeah. a way of knowing what do those mean so they're not invasive it usually it's done on blood uh, but it can be done on other body fluids and we did it on urine the school where we were doing the study said we don't want kids to think they're going to come to their to our school and get poked uh, to to give blood so can you do it on urine and the company Metabolon said, yeah, we, we can do that. And we did show changes that way. And metabolomics has been around for a long while. And people have said a lot of careers have been ruined on trying to figure out how to make metabolomics work. It involves so many factors. And um, it's, it's so, so many metabolomic byproducts, and then so many things that can influence them. But I think we're getting better at it and I am I guess hopeful that that we can find the, the study that don't have to be thousands and thousands of people but more uh, a variety of kids in control settings that could help us know what works and for whom. Yeah it'd be great to look at these sort of subtypes if you want to call it that. Uh, so just on that anything practitioners you recommend should or currently do now is any sort of basic sort of um, functional, if you want to call that, biomarkers that, that are commercially available, whether it's inflammation or oxidative stress, any vague sort of um, goalposts uh, practitioners can screen you know, for? We did a study a few years ago where we asked uh, five different centers that I had become aware of that were doing integrative medicine some of them were what used to be referred to as Dan doctors and now um, a different way of doing what they do. But I thought they were reasonable 
good people doing good medicine. And we, we then devised a way to say, what tests are you using? What are you using them for? How did they work? And it was really interesting, but I couldn't get any of the five people to agree <laughs> on what labs they use, uh, you know, what the laboratory test is or what laboratory they believe gives them the best results. So I tried to say, well, couldn't we all just agree for this study? And so then we could give practitioners a guideline for, you know, what they could use and do. And we couldn't get anybody to agree. We published the study. It was small. It wasn't a great study. And it didn't really come out with any clear guidelines. So what I've found mostly is that individual practitioners have their kind of favorites and I don't, so cytokines, you can get cytokines. It's really hard to interpret cytokines as a measure of inflammation. Uh, you know, you, and one of the things you wrote me ask about, uh, uh, I think. Uh, the organic acids? Organic acids, uh, some other things. I just, I can't, I, we, we did a search too of the literature to say what could guide us. Uh, and help people uh, know what things they could try. And I think the people that are using them use them because they've had a lot of experience. They're very thoughtful in what they use. I, I don't know that everybody is, but the ones that I know of, yeah. just really good practitioners. They just have an intuitive feel and they know what they're doing. But when I say, well, could you tell me how to do that myself? It's harder for them to say that, and we need the studies that could help do that. I just don't think they've happened yet. So I, I get routine labs, you know, like you do on all kids, a CBC and a metabolic panel. I look at D, uh, vitamin D3 levels. I sometimes have been interested in doing omega-3s. There's this interesting literature suggesting the kids that improve the most show low omega-3 levels. Usually, though, I just supplement them. I don't think there's anything dangerous about giving a kid a gram of omega-3 and giving them 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 for the small kids and 5,000 for the bigger kids. I think about other things that I might look for, like if I'm worried about iron deficiency or things like that, but I don't have a battery the way I know some integrative medicine docs do looking at these things because I don't know a good um, resource to say, you know, even we wrote to all of the labs that are doing these and saying, could you give us your normative data? And yeah. they didn't have normative data. <laughs> it was such a small group. You could say, how is that normative? How do we know? And, and so it's the field really needs to move along and it's very hard to get funding because of what we talked about earlier, pharmaceutical companies, laboratories aren't so interested in doing this because they can't get a patent on it. Um, the NIH, even the complementary alternative medicine part of that aren't as interested because it takes large sample sizes and hopefully someday we'll get there. Yeah. All right, so my takeaway is um given the obvious, like it can't hurt to have adequate omega-3s and vitamin D, um, methyl groups, whether it's B12 and whether it's folinic acid or 5-MTHF, et cetera, 
um, and work on the resilience and the mitochondria. Hopefully in time we'll have some clearer data on this met- metabolomics. It sounds like it's a really exciting future. So um, that's been, even though you mightn't have all, you know, the, the answers the answer people want to hear, I think it's really uh, uh, important to hear these um your your views on the, the testing and how to navigate this. All right. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious of time, and I got to fly to a, another meeting. So maybe just as a bit of a, a, a wrap up, some concluding remarks about yeah, ASD and um, current treatments and what you're sort of uh, hopeful for in the future. Well, I um, I hope we could find a better immune boosting way. You know, so. We know that kids, many kids with autism have evidence of immune difficulties and resulting inflammation. And so then people have tried using things like IVIG. Um, There are anecdotal reports of it kind of working for some kids, but it's very expensive and it's hard to get. It's hard to get anybody to pay for. So I don't think we're ready for that yet, but that's about you know, one of the best things we have. I, I wish that we had better immune boosting things, but I think that will make a big difference. I'm also, you know, we recently wrote a paper on perinatal factors in autism, looking at, you know, from preconception all the way through delivery. Uh, at factors that might play a role. And there's a growing body of literature suggesting that supplementing with things like omega-3s, with folinic acid, with vitamin D, with some other things, and then watching for toxins, uh, watching diet, not taking a lot of antibiotics. There's, There's a literature on that that we kind of summarized. And it agreed with other systematic reviews that would suggest maybe there's something we could do to prevent autism by helping the body be more resilient from the very beginning. I know that doesn't help the people right now, but it could help um, if we had large enough populations to study it in. So I feel hopeful about that. I... um, feel hopeful about finding biomarkers that can guide treatment. I feel hopeful about things that are going to affect the microbiome, uh, either helping break down large proteins or improving the tightness of the juncture in the walls that are showing some promise right now. Um, And I'm talking about all these things in terms of just treating the biomedical part of the body, there's, you know, great uh, help from things like applied behavioral analysis or great help from speech and language therapy. And I don't in any any way want to downplay that Mm. because I think the best program is one that combines all of those things, not having people do just one or two things. There's at least five or six that you could think of doing that kind of really wrap the kid around Um, helping lift that veil and then helping to pull the kid out from underneath that veil of autism. Beautiful. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, I I love that metaphor that these children have, 
yes, yeah, often unique skills and abilities. It's just they're sort of clouded with this um, dysfunction. And, yeah, you know, couldn't agree more about that. Yeah, really holistic approach. Not just a, a bag of, you know, um, molecules encased <laughs> yeah. in skin. And um, there's plenty of interventions that can be done. So, Bob, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm still blown away by the $100 million you've raised, which is probably like $3 billion Australian dollars. So it's even more more remarkable. Um, and it sounds like you're you know, really fighting good fight and um, must provide you know, parents a lot of hope. The other person that you might consider talking to if you haven't is Dan Rosignol. Okay. I might uh, look into that he's, and reach out. He's the head of um, what's called MAPS. I can't remember what MAPS stands for, but it's uh, when – you might have heard of the Dan Doctors. They yes. were started by Bernie Remlin and and that group, John Pangborn, others. You know, they, that's the group that the parents told me to go learn from. And I felt, you know, they weren't doing good science, but they were honest, passionate people about what they wanted to do. I think there were other people that weren't maybe as skilled that began to pick up that mantle without having earned a credential to do that, and that began to give them a bad name. So the group broke up, but Dan kind of took that group forward and provides trainings in this MAPS program. And, you know, when you talk about uh, organic amino acids or the other things, he knows about those, and he could tell you those things, and I think he'd be a good person to talk to. If you have trouble finding him, I don't think you will, but if you do, let me know and I'll tell you how to get in touch with you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. All right. I better let you fly because you're okay. great to talk with you. Thanks for your interest. Thank you. Okay. So long. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.